Good morning, church family. (laughs) Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's begin by praying this morning. Father God, we, we praise you for the opportunity to gather together this morning to worship, to examine your word, to examine our own hearts, and to celebrate what you have done on our behalf for the praise of your glory. We pray, Father, that through the, your Holy Spirit, we've been able to understand the words of this precious passage, that it would have life-changing, life-giving impact on every person in this room. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're drawing to the, conclu- the conclusion of Paul's incredible opening doxology in the first chapter of Ephesians. We've been looking at this text that brings our eyes and sets them on Christ. We read with, with words that are too big for our own comprehension what Paul exuberantly writes about Christ, about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of this has allowed us to understand a practical theology that produces doxology, that makes us a people that declare his praises. As we've moved through this first portion, we've identified blessings that are ours that point to who God is. We've seen that we are elect, which helps us understand that God is sovereign. We've seen that we're predestined, which helps us understand that God is eternal. We've seen that, that we are adopted, which helps us understand that God is our father. We see that we're redeemed, so we understand that he's our redeemer. We've been enlightened with wisdom and insight, so we know that that he must be generous. We've seen that we're forgiven by his blood, so we know that he must be gracious. We've seen that, and this week we'll see in these closing portions of of this doxology, that we have an inheritance. We are heirs, so it all must be his. And we'll also see that we have been given the Holy Spirit so we see that he is faithful to keep his promises. So that we have all of this freshly in view, I'm going to invite you to to stand yet again. And we're going to read from verses 3 through 14. And this morning we'll be focusing our, our eyes on verses 11 through 14. This is God's inspired and eternal word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." You may be seated. As we look at this morning's text, I want to draw our, our eyes to three different things that are examples of God's sovereign fulfilling of his promises. First of all, he promised unity in Christ. We left off last week with he's united all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So first of all, he's promised us union. Secondly, he's, he's promised us an inheritance that we wait for. And thirdly, he's promised us the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of that inheritance. That will, those are the things that we'll, we'll look at this morning. But before we understand all those things, let's go to verse 11 and make sure we rightly understand the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. In him, we. In him, we. We can't go any further than that without starting to make some applications. You see, the way we're wired, when we come to Scripture, we insert ourselves into the text. Look no further than Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. And we think it's about us. And here we see, in him, we. Well, are we we? Let's go back to verse 2. The introduction to this letter. Who does Paul write this to? Verse 1, rather. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay, saints. What's a saint? A saint is a sinner who's been covered by the blood of Jesus, who's been redeemed. If you have come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've been covered by his blood, your sins are atoned for, and positionally you are now a saint. So Paul says, in him, we. We would think then that Paul is referring to himself and to the saints, and we would love to apply this to ourselves. But we have to do a little more work than this. We have to understand that in verse 13, Paul says, in him, you. So we've got in him, we, and in him, you. Which one are we? Are we you or are we we? Or is there an I in team? It's all pretty confusing, right? Who is we? Well, let's consider who Paul is for just a minute. In Romans chapter 11, and I'd like you to flip there because we're going to look at a couple of different passages. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 11. Paul explains something about what we means. Paul describes himself in, in verse 1 and 2 of Romans 11. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul identifies himself first as a descendant of Abraham. He's a Jew. When Paul says, in him we, he's talking about a group of Jewish people who have come to know Christ, 
And this church, this Ephesian church, is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. So as we, we begin looking at this, we read, in him we, we need to understand that we, he's addressing the Jews, the Jewish followers of Christ in the Ephesian church. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We see throughout Paul's theology that the salvation that came in Christ was first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And this is part of God's plan. It's part of the, the counsel of his will. But not only is God's plan for the gospel first whispered to the descendants of Abraham, but it was also then given to the Gentiles as part of his plan. This predestination, we talked about that, right? His election of those who are to be his saints, it wasn't a plan B to include the Gentiles. This predestination is of both Jews and of Gentiles. And to understand this, we need to rewind and understand what Paul's saying when he's a descendant of Abraham. Who is Abraham? Okay, let's rewind. We all started as God breathed life into dust and created Adam, the first man. Man sins. Man rebels against God. God's had it with man's sin. He destroys mankind except for Noah and his three sons and his family. One of his sons is named Shem. The word Shem can also be pronounced Sem. From the line of Sem or Shem, you get the Semites. Those are the people that would ultimately become Abraham and his descendants. And we have Abraham then getting great and precious promises, which we'll recap together in a minute. But through all that, you'll remember that we mentioned Abraham was brought out of Ur of Chaldean, of Chaldea. He himself was a Gentile. God gives promises to Abraham, says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And then you'll have many descendants. Those descendants will be like the sands of the sea. And who are those descendants of Abraham? All those who would come to believe in the promised Christ. So when, when Paul's beginning to talk about we, and he's talking about you, he's talking about those who heard the promise as descendants of Abraham and those who would, who would then responded in the specific context of Ephesus, we need to realize that Paul began in preaching his message of the gospel to the Jews and then took it subsequently to the Gentiles. And to understand this, if you would, don't lose Romans 11. We're going to come back to there. But please, go to Acts chapter 19. Paul had an earlier visit to Ephesus and Luke gives us this narrative. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 10. There's some very important things that we'll come to understand about Paul's letter to the Ephesians from this account. Beginning at verse 1, Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to where? Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what have you been baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is an incredible encounter. Paul comes to Ephesus, and he finds these guys that are, that are following around with a bunch of Jewish people, descendants of Abraham. And he asks them, and he says, did you guys get the Holy Spirit? I'm like, Holy Spirit? What do you mean? And, and he does some further line of questioning to understand how they had, had come to be mixed up with this group of, of Jewish believers. And they said, well, we were baptized with the baptism of John. You may recall that the baptism of John the, Bapti of John the Baptist was a proselyte baptism. It was just as, as Christ, the Lamb of God, comes, and John the Baptist is baptizing people with a baptism of repentance, and he's effectively converting Gentiles to Jews. Did you know that still happens today? They're, the Jewish people are still open to inviting others who are of different ethnic lines into their faith. That is still proselytizing. That is still happening. John's baptism was one of baptizing Gentiles into Judaism. And, and that's why Christ comes at that moment to explain that he's now going to explain what they're really being converted into, what they're really being brought into. They're being brought into being true sons of Abraham. John the Baptist said, himself, said that himself, if you read the account. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to repent? Raise up out of these stones, sons for Abraham. So in this, Paul is explaining to this group of Gentiles that have converted to, to Judaism, like, you didn't get the whole story on this whole conversion thing. Let's go over this again. It says in verse 4 of, 19, of chapter 19, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was coming after him. That is Jesus. Amen. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. You see, that promise of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing that they were brought in to the true family of Abraham? The Holy Spirit. And then you'll notice what happens after that, just so we understand historically what's going on in the church of Ephesus. The Jewish people got tired of hearing about the way. Like, we were okay bringing Gentiles into to the, to the old faith, but this Jesus thing... Paul, you got to go someplace else. And so he goes to the, to the hall of Tyrannus, a, a large marketplace, a large place where the Gentiles would congregate. And it says there that Paul for two years preached and many throughout Asia would come and hear, hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So when Paul is addressing in Ephesians chapter one, in him we... And in him, you, what he's really wanting us to understand is what we see in verse 14, which is now there is an hour. There is an hour inheritance. It's ours because of what Christ has done. To help us understand this uh, great mystery, we have our fingers still in Romans chapter 11. There's a couple of key words that help us link what Paul says in his letter to the Roman church 
with what we see in Ephesians. First of all, we see that he talks about the counsel of God's will. Who gave God this amazing plan of the gospel? Who gave it to God? Answer, no one. Towards the, the tail end of Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33, Paul references what God is, what is said of God through Isaiah. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For those of you who haven't used the word inscrutable in a sentence this week, it means impossible to believe. Incredible. That's how God's wisdom is described. And what does that mean? He goes on to say, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And amen. So the counsel of God's will, who gave him this plan? So God's plan from the beginning was to take one Gentile guy from Ur of Chaldea, give him a bunch of promises, say that in time, all of this will come to pass so that I can create for myself a new covenant people. What an unthinkable plan. What an amazing plan. And, and what is that counsel of his will? How does that work? Back in verse 25 of Romans 11, Paul lays this out. He's a descendant of Abraham, and here's what he says. Lest you be unwise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this in a way that all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now also receive mercy. For God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then he goes on, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This is all God's plan. He takes these two groups with the goal of making them one. And if you think that plan is mysterious and hard to follow, look at how that plays out and how God created human beings. I'm going to use as an example the, uh, the fact that this week we have, this is not a commercial, it's not a guilt trip, don't feel bad, but we have corporate prayer the first Wednesday of every month. Now, as church leadership, we desire that everyone should be at corporate prayer, okay? So we have two home fellowship groups now. We've got one in El Cajon and one in Strips Ranch. We're going to say that one of those groups, the El Cajon group, we'll call those the Jews, okay? <laughs> don't take it personally, it, it's great. So that group is told in advance that there's prayer on Wednesday nights. That gives them the chance to anticipate, to prepare for, and tell others about prayer on Wednesday nights. Now, the other home fellowship, we'll call those the Gentiles, may or may not have announced that corporate prayer was happening on Wednesday night. But when we tell them, the word gets out, and we all come together. Now, when we come together for prayer, does it matter whether you are part of the, the Jews over in El Cajon or the Gentiles over in Scripps Ranch? Doesn't matter. But God, in his perfect plan, 
tells one group first and then the other group so that they all come together. Paul calls that out beautifully in Galatians when he explains what the church is supposed to look like. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, For as many of you as baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All united, all one group. Now, all this, kind of like redemption, kind of like blood, is sort of hard for us to follow. Like, how often do we think about Judaism? How often do we think about the roots of, of God's promises being spoken through Abraham? Kind of goes over our head a lot, right? But have you ever stopped to, to notice the neighbors that we have? They're kind neighbors. They've extended kindness to us on a number of levels. They, they share some of the same Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo values that we have. They have the, the same commandments from God that they're just as incapable of following them as we are, right? If you were to stand out at our buildings as a, as a non-believer and walk by, you'd say, no, there's two religious buildings. You know what the difference is? One's got a cross on it. <laughs> and that's the only difference. And that's what Paul's wanting to say. The only difference between those who are descendants of Abraham and those who are Gentiles brought in is the cross. When Christ looks at them and Christ looks at us, we're in him. That's the whole point. In him, we. Don't miss that. Returning to Ephesians. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This was his plan from the beginning. This was his sovereign plan to make one people out of two. Then he says in verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So those who are descendants of, of Abraham that would come to know that the Messiah they'd been waiting for had arrived, those people who would come to Christ would result in the praise of his grace. And going on, verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, the inheritance, and this is what we're going to talk next, so we understand now that in him, it's us. Right? There's no we, there's no you, there's, there's one people. And that's what Paul's addressing. He's addressing these saints, and now he wants to tell them about their shared inheritance. What do we know about inheritance? Do we earn an inheritance? No. I did a little research, and I, I found out about a woman named Mary Malone. Most of you here have probably never heard of Mary Malone. Mary Malone, at one point, was the richest person in the state of Pennsylvania, she inherited $3.8 billion. What did Mary do? She got married a bunch of times and raised horses for a hobby. Nothing special. But her grandfather was a chemist and came up with a really neat way to condense soup and create Campbell's soup. So the inventor of Campbell's soup leaves this $3.8 billion to an heiress. All of that points to the ingenuity of, of his invention, of what he had come up with. 
And in the same way, when we understand this concept of inheritance, all the merits are that of the giver. All the merits are of that of Christ, of what he has done on our behalf. That's why twice Paul says, this is to the praise of his glory. The heir, the heiress, they've done nothing. It's all been done through Christ. But what does this inheritance really mean? What is this concept all about? And again, we have to have Abraham in view. We're going to do a quick survey. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 23. I'll mention to you as you go to Genesis chapter 23 that as Abraham is taken out of Ur of Chaldea, he's, he's a sojourner. He's a nomad. He's going from one place to another. And he, in fact, has an encounter with God. God calls him. God tells him, I'm going to create a nation out of you. I'm going to give you that which throughout the Old Testament is associated with inheritance. He's going to give him what? Land. Now, this land is, is really important because what it represents is something that's more permanent than we are. Don't we all desire something more permanent than we are? We've learned that our life is but a vapor. We want something that lasts longer. Not only that, but land in different parts of the world would carry the name of the person from whom it was inherited. In Latin America, you'd have... Rancho Frega or Rancho Schroeder, right? The, the name is carried on along with the inheritance. But more than that, it represents a place of rest, a place of permanence, a place for you to reside when your sojourning days are done. But look how God begins to fill, fulfill his promise to Abraham of inheritance. In Genesis chapter 23, we find Abraham's bride at the end of her days. I'm going to read this for you. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. So give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, O Lord, you are a, a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns at the end of the field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. You see what Abraham's doing here? He, he's being offered a tomb. He said, no, you can use one of our tombs. That's fine. He says, no, no, no. I want this tomb to be that of my line. I will pay you for it as a final resting place. He's, he's a pilgrim moving through this land. He says, no, I'm going to buy this land. We're going to need this for later. Continuing from verse 10. Now Ephron was among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went into the gate of this city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, if you will hear me, 
I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me, you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees were in the field throughout the whole area, were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who were in the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried his, Sarah, his wife, at the cave that is the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, don't miss that twice. We see in that account that the land was made over to him. This is a written transaction. This is a, a sealed and witnessed real estate deal. Abraham buys this cave with its trees around it in the land of the Hittites and the land of the Canaanites in the presence of other witnesses. The transaction is made legitimate. It now belongs to Abraham. The sojourner, the guy passing through, now has a resting place. If you skip over to Genesis chapter 25, you see that Abraham, at a ripe old age, verse 7 of chapter 25. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Ishmael, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him at the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Birlahai Roy. See, God is showing his faithfulness and anticipating to the descendants of Abraham this promise, this inheritance that would be theirs. If you recall, as our brother John took us through the book of Joshua, when we get to Joshua chapter 20, 21, we find that this place, Kiriath Arba, was occupied and given over to the sons of Caleb. See, God is faithful. He's given this land promise to Abraham. Abraham gets a foretaste by buying a final resting place for him and his wife and his descendants. And ultimately, that, that promise of that land we see fulfilled in part in Joshua chapter 21. But the story doesn't end there. You see, this inheritance that we, that we long for, throughout the Old Testament, it, it points to land and it points to a final resting place, but that it's incomplete. It's a foretaste. It's a shadow of what ultimately every human being desires and needs. And that's the hope of rest, the hope of eternal salvation and security, only made possible through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews, the, the preacher, himself quite clearly a descendant of Abraham, explains to us that all that God had promised to Abraham was only, was only fulfilled in part, and that the fullness of that promise was yet to be fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, 
While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in his passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see that in verse 8? If Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another rest later on. All of this, the, the whispering of the gospel through the prophets. The, the promise made to Abraham, as the lights grow brighter and the gospel comes to full view, we understand that the rest that was ultimately promised was that, not of land, but that of Christ. John chapter 14, Jesus speaks of this this rest that he's preparing for those who are in him. We're going to look twice at, at this precious chapter as, as the God-man, the true seed of Abraham, comes on the scene to declare the perfect inheritance, to declare the perfect rest. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Beloved, that's the promise that Christ has come to himself, share in his inheritance. Who's the rightful heir? Christ. What is the inheritance? To be perfectly at rest. To have permanence. We desire to last longer than we last. What's longer than eternity? That's what we're promised. We desire to be in a place where we're perfectly free of struggle and toil. Where else would that be? Except united with God in Christ in the heavenly places. That's what we wait for. And just as sure as he promised to Abraham that that land would be his, he's promised to us that that rest will be ours. He says, if it weren't so, I would have told you. I spent a little bit of time with my father this week and he reminded me that the passage that he put on my mother's headstone and her final resting place was that verse. And if, I, and if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's our promise of inheritance right there. 
He's preparing it for us. It is prepared for us. It is set aside for us. That is the inheritance that every one of us who is in Christ is waiting for. Conversely, if you're not in Christ, the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed for each man to die and after that to face what? The judgment. Eternal unrest. That inheritance that is in Christ to be shared with those who are also in him, you have no part in it. None whatsoever. God, in Christ, offers his inheritance to us. I'm going to share that with you in a sermon form in just a minute. But I want us to understand first that there's a way we can have certainty as to whether or not we have a part in this inheritance. And that's a seal. A seal that shows us that the inheritance is rightfully ours. For those of you who may have received an inheritance, there's a, there's a will. There's a testament. In order to receive an inheritance, what has to happen? Somebody has to die. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus, in a parable form, explains to us the same truth that Paul is calling out. He's, he's explaining to us in this parable that the gospel was first proclaimed to the Jewish people. They rejected it. He gives the gospel to the Gentile people for the desire that all who hear would come to salvation. This is the parable of the tenants, beginning at verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit grew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put out those, riches, those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see what our, our wicked human hearts do? We try to take the inheritance for ourselves. We try to take those promises and all those things and take them without going through him who is the rightful heir, who gave himself freely for us. It says they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. But Christ laid down his life, willing 
to share his inheritance, to share his rest with us. And Ephesians tells us that we have already been seated with him in the heavenly places. This inheritance is already ours awaiting us. Going back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul describes how we become heirs with Christ. This is the gospel encapsulated in a beautiful, simple verse. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, to hear that proclamation of Messiah and to recognize that that Messiah is Jesus Christ who came and who gave his life, to believe in him, to deposit our faith in him for salvation, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, that same place where Jesus promises his rest and that inheritance for us, he also promises that while he's going to prepare that rest for us, he's going to send one in his place, a comforter, a helper, John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's how we know we have an inheritance. When that deed is made over to us, it's witnessed as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we're going to speak in tongues. That doesn't mean we're going to get crazy Pentecostal. But it means that the Spirit of God indwells us so that when we read passages like this, we're not like, I don't get it. No, he gives us enlightenment and the ability to understand. He gives us an understanding of what his word is declaring, and we can test all things against it. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Is that you this morning? Have you heard and believed does the, does the cross make sense to you? Does the cross have a life-changing impact on you? If it does, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal rest. Now, I'd, I'd like to say I'm really getting good at presenting the gospel and sharing it, and I'm learning. But you know what? God allowed me to find this amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to let Peter do the talking for me, and I'm going to let him lay out for us all that we see here. We see in this text the promise of us, the in him we. We see the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and we see the promise of the inheritance. Listen carefully to Acts chapter 2. Extra credit for the, the high school youth that may have already seen a little bit of this from the prophet Joel this morning, right? Peter starts out at Pentecost, verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be that as God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and young men shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams. 
even on male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see that? The counsel of his will. No, no plan B. The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he was both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day. You see that? His final resting place was known. But look, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone, with, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. You see, that's the life-giving gospel. That's the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that Jesus, his final resting place, that earthly tomb, he borrowed it for a couple of days. And now he's at the right hand of God the Father, securing for us that rest that's promised to us. What's necessary for us to become heirs of that promise? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the promise of that inheritance. All of that, that inheritance that's ours, that promise of that inheritance, what's it for? It's for the praise of his glory. If you've been given that inheritance, sing his praises. 
You ever been to one of those parties where they have the, the table out and the, you put the gift on the table and you know that they're gonna open it with everybody watching? So you might wanna bring the, the nicest gift, the best gift. That's what Christ has done. So that all will know that his gift, his inheritance, his promise, his rest has been given to us so that his character is seen. He's given us election. So he's sovereign. He's given us redemption. So he must be redeemer. He's made us heirs. So it must all be his. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. So his promises must be perfectly true. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your plan is, is not a contingency plan. It's not a plan B. It's a plan that from creation past was intended to be for our good and for your glory. God, we pray that we would receive it with such thanksgiving that you would be praised in our lives. May we, you be praised through us and receive the glory today and throughout our week as we live as, as joint heirs because of what you've done for us. We thank you for that inheritance. We didn't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it, but help us live in a manner that is worthy of that. You have qualified us to share in that inheritance. We thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name, amen.